Hello, I'm Amanda Moore. I'm the director of the Clearinghouse Community. Welcome to the Advocacy Exchange for May 2018. The Advocacy Exchange is our monthly conversation with advocates advancing change. Both the Clearinghouse Community and the Advocacy Exchange are brought to you by the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, a national leader in advancing justice and opportunity. And I have with me today three guests, and I will introduce them in turn. First, I have Madison Hardy. Madison is a senior policy analyst and attorney at CLASP, the Center for Law and Social Policy. And she joins us today from Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome, Madison. Hi, everyone. Second is Sonia Schwartz. Sonia is a consultant with Sonia and Partners LLC, and she's currently consulting for the National Immigration Law Center. She joins us today from Washington, DC. Hi, Sonia. Hi, everyone. And last but not least is my Shriver Center colleague, Gavin Carney. Gavin is the Senior Director of Multi-State Advocacy at the Shriver Center, and he joins us from Chicago. Hi, Gavin. Hello. So Gavin, Sonia, and Madison, along with Gabrielle Lassard, who's a senior policy attorney at the National Immigration Law Center, co-authored this month's Clearinghouse article. It's called The Trump Administration's Next Attack on Immigrant Families and How You Can Fight It. You can find their article on the Clearinghouse community. That's at povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. And these authors came together to write this article as part of their involvement in a new effort. It's called the Protecting Immigrant Families, Advancing Our Future Campaign. This campaign formed in response to a leaked document from the Trump administration that pertained to something called the Public Charge Doctrine. We're going to talk about what the Public Charge Doctrine is, how it may be changed, and why this is such an urgent issue. All right, so let's start by talking about the Public Charge Doctrine. First, let's talk about, make sure we understand what it is and what it has to do with immigrant families. Madison, can you give us the basics? Sure. Um, so the public charge doctrine has been a part of federal immigration law for over a hundred years. And it was designed to identify people who may depend on government benefits as their main source of support. Um, the public charge test is forward looking and looks at several different factors. So it looks at factors like income, age, and family status. And if someone is determined to be a public charge, they can't be admitted to the United States, and they're also ineligible to become a lawful permanent resident or green card holder. And historically, um, the public charge determination was limited to an evaluation of just two types of benefits. And those benefits were cash assistance, so programs like TANF and SSI, and also government-funded long-term care. And other programs like Medicaid and SNAP were specifically excluded. And because the definition of public charge was so narrow, practically we saw very few denials on this basis. And so that meant that immigrants and their families could participate in programs like Medicaid or housing assistance if they were eligible. And they could participate without worrying that that participation would have a negative consequence on their immigration status. Madison, I want to jump in before you answer the next question. We've had a couple of comments that they're having people are having trouble hearing you. So I don't know if you need to sort of get closer to the mic the next time you answer or not, but I wanted to address that. Okay. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, Sonia, the public charge idea has been part of U.S. immigration law for over 100 years. What has happened that's made this so urgent right now? 
So um, if folks can remember back to the first months of the Trump administration when the travel ban executive order was released, which we now refer to as the Muslim ban, right after that, um, in late January, there was an unsigned but leaked executive order about public benefits. Ooh. Um, and that was the beginning of all of this. Again, that was an unsigned leak policy, so it actually had not, didn't have any actual effect, but it put us on our heels and it was sort of a, a call to resist. Um, since then, um, through, we wait, we watched and waited for about a year, and we saw that during the DREAM Act negotiations that were happening in January and February of 2018, a real interest on the part of the Trump administration in not just sort of making it harder for those who are not here, not lawfully present to live here, but also to make it harder for those who are trying to live in the United States legally to do so or to for people, they basically were trying to limit family-based immigration. And they were trying to do it through Congress, through some type of DREAM Act compromise, but they absolutely did not succeed. Congress didn't want to go there. So now what we're seeing is, you know, um, several leaked drafts of an NPRM. So instead of an executive order, they're now using the official comment, you know, process, official, sorry, regulatory process to unleash an NPRM that would basically have the effect of also limiting family-based immigration and restricting it to people with very high incomes who, you know, they themselves are family members, you know, might have used public benefits or might in the future use public benefits. And that's really where I think this animus is coming, coming from. Although the reg has not been actually formally published yet, it went to the Office of Management and Budget, which is the last step in the clearance process on March 29th, 2018. So it's been almost two months. And um, so it's in the final stages of clearance. We think it's in negotiations right now with Department of Homeland Security and other agencies affected by the rule. And while it would be nice to think that a lot of our activities to resist have blocked this rule, the two people in the administration who are most focused on this policy and have wanted to see these policies happen for a long time, Stephen Miller and Jeff Sessions, are still in our administration and they're still there and they're still pushing behind the scenes. So I don't think we can sit back and feel comfortable that this will just go away. We have to fight it every step of the way. Thank you, Sonia. And thank you also, Gwyneth, um, who clarified on the live chat what NPRM stands for, a notice of proposed rulemaking. I was going to ask that. So. Can I say one more thing? Um, yes. So while the rule's been at the Office of Management and Budget, I just wanted to do a shout out and thanks all the folks on this call who've mobilized. Um, the Shriver Center itself and Legal Aid of New York actually met with Office of Management and Budget and raised many economic impact concerns. We had cities and states across the country raising concerns, provider groups like the Academy of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Public Hospital Association also raising concerns and also those who provide nutrition assistance. And that would not have happened so quickly and effectively without all the folks um, who are on this who are on this web chat and out there in the community who really care about this and can document and demonstrate the harm that would happen. Thank you. Great point. I'll remind you, the live chat is available. You can send us your questions that way. You can also email me. Um, I'll be watching my email while we're talking. My email address is Amanda Moore, M-O-O-R-E, at povertylaw.org. So if live chat's not your thing, you can still ask a question. Gavin, I want to turn to you now and ask you about what is it that these leaked regulations say? What, what is it about public charge that they would change? Sure. Um, so there's a number of things that cause significant concern, but I'll just focus on three of them. Um, one is, so 
Madison mentioned earlier that under current public charge doctrine, there's a focus on cash assistance programs and long-term institutionalization. And the, the um, thrust of that is to, is to focus on whether someone is likely to become primarily dependent on government assistance for their subsistence. The new rules as leaked would look at what, would evaluate whether someone is likely at any time to use one or more public benefits programs. So it's no longer this notion of dependence on public benefits, which obviously has its own problematic nature, but it's a focus on whether anybody at any time is likely to need public benefits for whatever reason. The second uh, big concern with them is that it dramatically expands the benefits that they would consider. And so now it would include Medicaid, it would include earned income tax credit, it would include WIC, CHIP, basically any program that's designed to help people meet their basic needs in terms of food, in terms of housing, in terms of utilities, et cetera. And so there are a number of programs that are specifically mentioned in the leaked rules, but then there's a catch-all phrase that's basically anything that you would use to meet your, your, you or your family's basic needs. The third uh, big concern with these regulations is that they would not just look at whether you are likely to use them, they would look at whether your dependents are likely to use them as well. And this is a particular concern for families where you may have US citizen children and parents with, with uh, a different immigration status. And so here families are gonna be put in a position of choosing between vital services for their kids and their ability to stay in the country, their ability to keep their families together. So those three things together, I think are the big changes and then the last thing I'll just mention briefly is there is a, a provisions around deportation where there's placeholder language in the leaked rules. It basically says, work with the DOJ to figure out these, this, this, these provisions. And so uh, it's possible that we would see something with respect to deportation that would be of concern as well. Thank you, Gavin. We've had a question come in, and I think sort of in the context of your, your response, it was answered, but I just want to make sure we answer it expressly. The question came from Eddie, uh, and it is, clarify, please, if a lawfully present immigrant can be impacted by this harsh regulation. Yes. It, it doesn't apply to all immigrants. It's very important to be specific about what your circumstances are, but this is not about undocumented immigrants. This applies to people who could be here under a number of different visas, people who would over time seek to adjust their status to that of a permanent resident. Right, thank you. Um, uh, next, let's go back to Madison. So Madison, make sure we can hear you when you're talking. Your organization, CLASP, has already looked at how immigrant families are responding to the anti-immigrant rhetoric that's already out there, that's already coming from the administration. What is going on now and what might this public this change the public charge rules how would it further affect those immigrant families so first let me do a little sound check can folks hear me i hear you okay but i maybe a little more volume would if you can okay i'll put my outdoor voice on there you go great um, so the first thing that i'll say um, in response to your question amanda is that it's really important to point out that rules regarding public charge determinations in the United States have not changed. And that means that for many immigrant families, there may be no benefit to disenrolling from public programs right now. The leaked drafts that we've seen specifically say 
that benefits that are not currently included in the definition of public charge can only be considered after the rule is final. I think the reality is, and the question that you're asking, is that families are already disenrolling from programs. I think what the Trump administration has discovered is that they don't actually need to pass laws or finalize regulations in order to terrify immigrant families. The threats themselves are enough. So over this past year, um, my colleagues at CLASP traveled the country and they talked um, with providers and with parents about the reality of what immigrant families are dealing with. And what they found over and over again is that young children are getting less access to health and nutrition services because of their family's fears. They talked to moms who were afraid to sign their children up for programs like Medicaid and food stamps. Um, and they've got some just really terrifying examples, um, some heartbreaking examples of what they saw, and that's all available in a report on our website. But I'll, I'll add that it's not just a report that CLASS did. Um, these findings are actually consistent with media reports that we're seeing every day of immigrant families who are declining to enroll in programs like SNAP and Medicaid. They're staying away from community hospitals and health centers. Um, just to give you a really recent example that we heard from one of our partners at the National WIC Association, there was a young mother with DACA um, and she um, had a new baby but she went back to the WIC clinic and she returned her breast pump because she was so terrified that participating in the Women, Infants, and Children program would prevent her from getting a green card down the road. So if this rule moves forward, um, there's no doubt in my mind that we're gonna hear more and more of these stories, that we're gonna see parents dropping out of programs and disenrolling their children, even though they would remain eligible. Uh, to put that number or put this fear really in, in numbers, I wanted to flag that there's a, a Kaiser Family Foundation report that came out just last week, and they tried to estimate what this chilling effect would do. And their estimate is that a 25% decline in Medicaid and CHIP enrollment among U.S. citizen children with an immigrant parent would result in over 1 million children becoming uninsured. Um, and we know from countless studies that losing access to healthcare and nutrition services will have devastating effects for these kids, not just right now, but in the long term. Thank you, Madison. And so as part of Madison's answer, she referenced the report that CLASP did along with some other uh, recent um, studies and news reports. And I'll note that those are all cited and linked to in my guest's clearinghouse article, which you can find at povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. That link will also be in the email that you receive later this week from the Shriver Center as a follow-up to this um, advocacy exchange. We've had a couple of questions come in about specific programs, wondering if those are um, affected by public charge. So I'll just ask those um, of you now. Annie asks about um, if the regs cover the free and reduced lunch program. And Elizabeth asks, um, should immigrants who have recently received their employment authorization cards fear that applying for Affordable Care Act tax credits will affect their prospect for resident status? So we can start with the free and reduced lunch program. 
So I, I can answer that. Um, I can tell you that in the, the latest draft, the free and reduced price lunch program is not specifically enumerated as one of the programs that will be considered. Um, but again, we have not yet seen the full list of benefits that are on the included and excluded list because we haven't yet seen the proposed rule. Um, at this point, all we've seen are leaked drafts. Um, to the question about Affordable Care Act benefits, um, the leaked draft specifically includes subsidies that are received through the Affordable Care Act, both in terms of the um, advanced premium tax credits and the cost sharing reductions. Receipt of those benefits could be counted against someone in the leaked draft. But um, if they signed up now, would it, or is it just prospective from when the regs are finally issued? Exactly, just prospective from when the final rule is issued. I think the, the current leak draft says 60 day, any benefit that's added that wasn't previously part of the public charge determination uh, is effective 60 days after the publication of the rules. Now, again, it's a leak draft though, so that those provisions could change. Thank you for your questions, Annie and Elizabeth. Uh, so we have we had a huge response to this advocacy exchange. There's a lot of interest in this. Um, I'm assuming that means a lot of people want to know what they can do. So Sonia, I'll turn to you and ask what it is that legal aid, other public interest attorneys can do about this right now. Well, I'll just say with the, this threat on our shoulders, um, one thing that we are is organized. And for folks that are legal aid attorneys or public interest attorneys, I actually think you'll be in the best position almost of anyone in the United States to help us understand the harm and push back against this rule. And I'm going to walk through some very specific things that folks can do. Um, First, we'd really love to have you participating actively in our Protecting Immigrant Families campaign that's co-led by the National Immigration Law Center and CLASP, and they're really easy ways to get involved. The first thing you can do is just join our campaign email list, and you can do that at bit.ly backslash PIF campaign, and bit.ly links if you haven't used them, it's bit.ly backslash PIF campaign. And then we'd really love to have you participating actively in one of our working groups. The one that tends to be the best fit among nerds like legal services attorneys is our policy and legal working group. Um, but there are a number of other ones I think that would be of interest. There's a federal advocacy one, there's a communications one, there's one where we're really working with field partners to activate and engage people at the state and local level in the campaign. Um, and so we'd love to have you join those and I'll, I'll have Amanda also share links, but in a nutshell, it's um, there's a link that's bit.ly at PIF active members WG, where you can sign up to be part of working groups. You can also have your organization sign up to be an active member of the campaign as well through that form. Um, the comment period, you know, will open right away when and if this rule is published. We're hoping we're going to have 60 days to really put together together the most thoughtful, deep, high quality comments we can from folks like you. And we also have a strategy through a website where you know, thousands and thousands of direct service providers and individuals around the country will be able to submit a comment really even on their smartphone or on a web page in just a minute or two. Um, so we have a range of activities there, but we really, really want you engaged in the comments. And Madison in a minute is going to talk about that. There's just one more thing I wanted to say, which is that I think that folks who actually directly represent immigrant families who have complicated lives, you know, with children who may be eligible for benefits and know, you know, 
how those benefits help families, you know, um, assimilate or thrive in the United States and how important they are in a really good position also to share stories with us, which we really need. We need stories that both demonstrate the harm that a rule like this would cause, like Madison was talking about with the return breast pump, for example, but also stories about how these benefits really help families thrive and, you know, tell stories of success. So, um, I'll just turn it over to Madison now because she has some more specific suggestions if you're um, an LSC. Go ahead, Madison. Sure. So we've been getting a lot of questions about how um, legal services organizations can engage in this work. And I think the number one ask that I have for legal services organizations is to please, please submit comments. Um, and I know there's been some concerns about this, so I wanted to flag a couple of those. One is whether or not nonprofits are allowed to comment on proposed regulations. And I wanted to clarify that submitting comments on a proposed rule that would impact your work is not considered lobbying and is totally permissible for 501c3s. The other question is about organizations that get legal services corporation funding. Um, and LSC organizations do have more restrictive rules, but it doesn't mean that you can't comment. It just means that you can't comment with your LSC funds. If you've got outside funding and you can document that you're commenting with separate funds, it's absolutely permissible. And on that end, um, the Protecting Immigrant Families campaign with NILC and with CLASP, we're working to make sure that we have template comments available that you can use. Um, we're also working to develop a comment microsite um, where affected community members and community providers like nurses and teachers who are really going to be seeing this impact on the ground um, will be able to comment with just a few clicks. So your input as legal services providers is just so essential here um, because you can talk about real people um, and the impact to your clients and what this would mean for your community. I think the other big thing we want from legal services providers is client education. Um, in order to fight this chilling effect, we're really going to need to help people understand what is happening with this rule, when it goes to effect, and whether or not they're even subject to the public charge regulation. Thank you, Madison. Um, I'll follow up. There are quite a few resources mentioned um, in Sonia and Madison's answers. We will put those in that follow-up email. So there will be links to sign up to the various PIF groups, that the Protecting Immigrant Families PIF uh, groups that Sonia mentioned. Um, we will include an article that was published in the Clearinghouse, um, I think four years ago, about LSC programs and rulemaking specifically, um, which will have some guidance for you there. Um, and uh, I think maybe that was it. But whatever resources we've mentioned, they'll be in that email. We've had a couple of uh, questions come in. Um, let's see. We had a question come in from Lena, and she asks about um, how about families accessing the charity care system of hospitals or families with U.S. citizen children who are catastrophically ill who want to access, and she mentioned specifically, the New Jersey Catastrophic Emergency Fund. So I'll take a first stab at that. Um, that those, the, certainly the New Jersey program is not specifically mentioned in the rules, but the rules do apply to federal, state, and local benefits programs, and they do apply to subsidized health insurance. So, um, 
And all the benefits that are means tested. And means tested benefits as well, right. Mm -hmm. So under the current leak draft, those would appear to fall under the public charge rule. I think also what these particular questions really underscore, and and obviously this is something folks are thinking about, is that when uh, there's actual formal issuance of regulations, there's going to be a real need to um, get into the specifics about what's in and what's out so that people can give effective advice to their clients and to their community partners. And that's something that um, that folks in the Protecting Immigrant Families campaign are very much mindful of and, and thinking about. Thank you. We had a, another question. Lena asked a follow-up. Um, if When you mentioned the stories about the national effort, is there a national effort to collect the community stories? And someone responded, Elena, thank you, um, at the at the uh, links that you mentioned, Sonia, which we will include. So is, is that the best place for people to submit? There's, we actually, the, 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 the Protecting Immigrant Families campaign now has a live story link page. I have the link here, but it's a little bit long. So I think it would be best if we shared it in the follow-up email. Um, but it's very simple. It asks for very basic information. Stories can be provided by affected individuals directly or by someone working with them that's a service provider or a close friend um, and we're really looking forward to having the help you know we're we, we we haven't wanted to make families afraid so we've been a little cautious with our story advocacy to date but we now have the ability to gather stories more effectively with this story page which we'll want to send out after this call after this webcast thank you uh, Linda asks a question um, so our usual audience is legal aid attorneys, public interest attorneys. So that's what we're focusing on. But she wondered if there are sort of um, complementary outreach and education efforts targeting immigration attorneys as opposed to these, you know, legal aid attorneys. I'll take that one. Um, so one thing I was going to add is that one thing that I think um, le legal services attorneys working not in immigration, but on public benefits and other issues can help with is educating immigration attorneys. Obviously, there are lots of different immigration attorneys with different backgrounds and different ways in which they work. However, most immigration attorneys are focused on ensuring that their clients can get their immigration benefits, you know, that they can adjust to get a green card, that they can stay in this country legally, that any action they may do outside of that would not have any effect on their Im potential Im future immigration status. And so they tend to be extremely cautious. And even under the current rules, which are very clear cut, as Gavin as Madison and Gavin described, um, even we've had to do a lot of education over the last 20 years to get them to understand that if a family member enrolls in Medicaid and receives preventive care or vaccinations or prenatal care, that does not affect another family members or that individual's immigration status. Even that has been difficult. So imagine now with this changing landscape, potentially um, it becomes more complex and there's going to be a huge need to educate immigration lawyers. I'm happy to say that the American Immigration Lawyers Association is a partner in this campaign and they're actually going to take a really active role in our comment process working with other immigration lawyers. So that's terrific. And we we expect that partnership will continue into the client and into the lawyer education and client education realm. But it is something that I think we all need to work on. And I actually recently was on a panel with um, at Whitman Walker here locally, a legal, a legal services attorney who actually works on immigration, but in a health clinic. And that's the kind of immigration lawyer, I think, that's really an expert in their community that can really sort through these benefits and immigration issues. And I think we also need to empower people like that to really help train the rest of their community. So anyway, thank you, Sonia. Yeah. 
yeah. So we've had some more questions come in and a few of them are about timing. Um, we don't know when this is, if, when this is going to happen, do we? Nope. Okay. And so the follow-up was, well, let's say it does, what happens then? What do we expect um, when this, if this goes into effect, when it's announced? So I can, I can take the first stab at that one. Um, as far as, you know, we're shaking our heads, we don't know when this rule is coming out. Um, and the answer is that we don't. The unified agenda says that the rule will be out in July of 2018. Um, but that unified agenda is not binding in any way. Um, and at NILC and at CLASP and all of our partners, we are waking up every morning and first thing checking the Federal Register website um, because we really do think that this regulation could be published any day now. Um, we have had a lot of time to prepare and we're still working on it. Um, but within the first hour of the rule coming out, if you're on our listserv, you'll be getting an email with us notifying you that it's out um, and immediately providing resources. We've got an amazing rapid response analysis team that's going to start diving in in those first few hours so that we can turn around and get you a pretty quick um, analysis of what's in the regulation within the first few hours. Um, and within the first 24 or 36 hours, um, we'll be updating all of our materials so that you'll have really accurate information that you can share with your partners um, and information that you can get out to community members. Thank you. That addresses another question that came in. Um, someone was uh, asking, who's not an attorney, but who does work in the field with community members, um, how to get the right information. So it sounds like going to this to the PIF, sign up, getting on the mailing list, you will be you'll get access to resources you can share with community members. Yeah, absolutely. We've got um, several different working groups that are, will be providing different resources. So not just talking points for community members, um, but there's a federal advocacy group that will be having talking points for members of Congress. We've got a communications group that will be developing sample op-eds and social media content. Um, so sign up and stay tuned, and we promise that we'll get you the resources you need. Great. Thank you, Madison. And we will provide the links to those places where you can sign up to get the resources um, in the email that you'll be getting from the Shriver Center. We have run out of time. I appreciate all of you who have tuned in and asked great questions. Thank you to my three guests. Um, I'll remind everyone that you can find an article with more details about this, including links on the Clearinghouse community, which is at povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. Um, you can also find the advocacy as a podcast. So if you can't sit and watch videos of past episodes, you can uh, subscribe to the podcast. You can find that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. I also want to invite everyone to join us for next month's Advocacy Exchange. We're going to be talking about another issue that's important for those who work with immigrant clients, and that is language access rights. I'll be talking with Terry Ramos of Ramos Law LLC and Joanne Lee of the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles about the basics of enforcing language access rights. And that conversation will take place on Friday, June 22nd, same time as today, 1 o'clock Eastern and 10 o'clock Pacific. The link to register for that will also also be in that follow-up email. We hope that you will join us next month. And until then, remember that you're not alone out there. Thank you.